And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast, the free version. It's going to be on Patreon first at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. And the free version goes out every Wednesday. This will be uh, the week leading up to Christmas. and got a fun episode for you as I play Dirty Laundry by uh, Don Henley when he broke up uh, after the when are when are the Eagles getting back together when hell freezes over? And sure enough, that's uh, they ended up having that tour in 94. But uh, yeah, Don Henley about the media coverage of the Natalie Wood death back in 1981. And of course, there's all those conspiracy theories that go along with it. But he didn't like how the media was portraying somebody like Natalie Wood, who was a, a very famous actress. And, you know, there was all that trouble towards the end with uh, uh, Robert Wagner and everything. But uh, uh, the sensationalism of media. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about that here in the podcast. But uh, joining me is somebody who I actually have known for the last now 16 years since I was in college. He's actually that long ago. Who, wow. <laughs> yeah. You you helped you helped me get into radio. You were the guy that uh, everyone said, you got to talk to John Kersey. He's going to help you. Uh, try to get an internship. And that was, uh, yeah, it was 16 years ago this month here in December, because it, uh, back in those days, now and give the proper introduction, you're a, you are a, a teacher of uh, mass communications and journalism uh, at Cuyahoga Community College. And uh, I mean, you've, you've been around this and you've been a part of this landscape and I mean, you're still teaching, you're still very active in the community and everything. And uh, first of all, it's good, good to see you. Good to talk to you here. The same here, Tony, really good to see you again, man. Yeah, it's it. So yeah, sixteen years ago, I was trying to get into uh, uh, Rover's Morning Glory and all these other uh, stations, and <laughs> it was it was way harder at that time to try to get an internship because you had to know somebody and they had to uh, like go back and forth. There was a lot of emails back and forth, and you sprung it upon me, uh, and I, I still have the email somewhere, and I think I even uh, sent it to you earlier this year. Saying you did. That, uh, uh, like I have a friend of mine who works at WKNR. It's a sports station. They're always looking for some interns. Uh, we're hiring a couple of interns. I'm like, okay. So I got my college credit through through you to get an internship into radio. And uh, yeah, that was uh, going on 16 years now. But uh, here I am. I'm I'm not in radio, but I am doing the ever evolving industry of what radio has become, which is podcasting. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk a little bit about in this podcast here, John. Is that you know, you've seen the the incarnation of all these other things that have popped up over time, whether like, for example, in radio, you've had the uh, you had satellite radio. Even before that, there were the problems 40 years ago that radio stations were seeing about being too MTV heavy. We, like, are you going on a campaign to fight MTV or are you going to embrace the music and the ever changing landscape? Well, that's what media has really had to do overall from newspapers, radio, television to whatever we have nowadays, especially when it comes to social media. So, John, talk about what uh, what how you have seen this in your time of teaching and being a part of this. And are we going in a direction that is is for the betterment of journalism is it for worse journalism or is this just that's that's just the way the business it just continues adapting boy great questions tony um for worse and it's going to continue to get worse i fear is the short answer to that and i'll give you a couple of kind of explanations and, and rationale for that um big media tries to get keep getting bigger you know, we see mergers, we see acquisitions. We saw what happened in the radio industry after the uh, Telecommunications Act passed in the late 1990s when this big flurry of mergers came around and this company called Clear Channel swallowed up all these 
radio stations. At one point, I think they had about 1,200 stations all over the country. And the truth, truth of the matter was, was the economic model was not sustainable. And sure enough, you know, I think it was three or four years ago, they filed for bankruptcy because they could not sustain paying the debt and all the money that they borrowed to acquire all these radio stations. Uh, that is a little bit about the radio story. But the other part of it, which you well know, is technology, uh, voice tracking, uh, the ability to connect people by satellite and then high stream uh, connections. So you can have one person's um, talent on any given day be heard in 100 or 200 markets around the country. And what that does is that puts 150 or 200 people in that local market out of a job mm -hmm. because the national person is is the person that the people are tuning in to hear instead of the local person. And I think that's been the big problem is that the business model has driven things bigger and bigger and bigger. And what we lose is the smaller local angle on what's happening. People are paying less attention than ever before about what's going on in their own backyard. And because of that, there's less people buying newspapers. There's less people paying attention to local news in the morning. Uh, they think they're getting what they need to know via social media. They're not, but they think that they do. And as a result of that, the news landscape has changed in ways that nobody could have predicted 20 years ago, even 15 years ago. Uh, and, it, and, and really, in my mind, it, it's sad for both people in their 20s and 30s that are starting out and trying to go somewhere. It's also sad for our, our society because too much of our society is trying to get news and information via social media. And it's neither reliable nor good for an informed democracy. You know, when I think about the days of like me, I would say about 2009, 2010 is when I really started seeing the changeover from uh, if you want to find out the latest information, you'll have to wake up tomorrow morning and, and read the newspaper. Then it got to the point where uh, I, I had a friend of mine who worked for a small town newspaper in Mansfield, Ohio. The and news journal, huh? Yeah, oh, yes, the news <laughs> yeah. journal, or as the, some called it the news urinal if they didn't like the content. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but you would have a lot of these 30, 35, 40 year uh, 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 veterans who were working there who would put out a column, would put out a story, and that was about it. And you'd wait till the next day and have deadlines. And the news journal at the time and all these other newspapers, wasn't just this one, were saying, we need you to do more than one thing a day. We can't have you write one story and then sit around or cover something else or do whatever. You have to put blog posts. And there's also this thing called Twitter. Like you should probably <laughs> post your stuff on this Twitter thing and go from there. And they're like, yeah, I don't know how to do it. So some had to, some adapted pretty well. Uh, but I just remember like over 10 years ago, it was the, the handholding of old media, the old legacy media to get into the new generation of how we break news now. And that's where Twitter, I mean, it, you know, there, we, we could probably talk for two hours about what's going on currently at Twitter with Twitter files and Elon Musk and everything. But ultimately, Twitter at the beginning, 10 plus years ago, was a great tool to get your news out. And it still is to this day of <clears throat> You don't have to wait for it and read it in the newspaper tomorrow morning. If you have breaking news at 530 in the morning, well, at, you're not going to wait till four o'clock the next morning to read it in the newspaper. You want to find out the news now. And that's just where we're at. So there is a focus. People still need local news. They're just 
going to have to find it in different ways than watching, you know, the local news anymore or hearing a, a quick blurb about it on the radio or reading in the newspaper. Yeah. Tony, I'm going to throw out a word that many people listening to your podcast may have never heard before. That word is gatekeeper. Mm. And back in the old days of news and gathering of news and reporting of news, there would be an editor or a director, or in the case of a newspaper, there might be multiple editors who would actually review a reporter's copy to make sure it was accurate, to make sure it fit the format of the paper and so on and so forth before it went out. One of the many things that social media has done is basically eliminated all of those roles and positions. Uh, I remember this couldn't have been more than maybe six or seven years ago, and we could look it up, right? Uh, when the Heinens opened up in downtown Cleveland at the old Ameritrust building on East 9th and Euclid Avenue, a uh, reporter who's no longer with the plane dealer, Cleveland.com, Janet Chow, got the assignment of being there that day. And she asked who's going to edit her copy, and the answer was nobody. Your copy will go live on the Cleveland.com when you write it. And by the way, we want you to put out Twitter stuff and do occasional Twitter posts when you're there about what you see and what you, you know, who walks into the Heinens and so on and so forth. So wait, she, had, she of, had access to the back end to post it right to the website. Correct. There wasn't a copy editor to go through to make sure that uh, this the proper preposition, preposition, here's proper sentence structure, run on all this kind of stuff. It's like she's doing it on the fly, essentially, almost on her smartphone, if you think about correct. it. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Although she, she actually did on a laptop. But having said that, that was like the, the the landscape change in the Cleveland market when all the Cleveland reporters realized what was going on. And again, they should have before. You know, I like to say this back in 2001, 2002, uh, there were like several hundred people who were part of um, the, the newspaper guild. It was actually union local number one of, of the National Newspaper Guild. And now that 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 union no longer even exists because of all the layoffs and consolidations, the cutbacks and changes in that industry. So, you know, many hundreds of people who had jobs reporting the news, editing the news, taking pictures for the news, later taking videos for the news, no longer have have that work. And again, some of it is due to social media. Some of it's due to conglomerations and mergers and acquisitions. And some of it's due to changing habits that we have developed, how we do news and social media. You know, in preparation for this, I, I did a little bit of research and found some astonishing things, right? If you're between the ages of 16 and 40, your number one source for news, you ready? According to a research is YouTube. Oof. 37% Oof. of people say that's their primary source of news. And that's a scary thought because there are no gatekeepers on YouTube. That means the person who's looking is basically looking based on what YouTube has identified as their previous trends. And that means they're not really getting news. They're not really getting information. They're getting some algorithmic interpretation of what their interests are. Mm. And that's part of the problem nowadays is that nobody is presenting contrarian points of view. You know, if you've heard these phrases, you know, that we're in information bubbles and things like that, that that's more true than we ever realize. Yeah, I remember when I used to hire news people uh, back when I was working in news radio and we would ask young younger people coming for the job who say where do you go for news what's and they say oh i usually go to twitter or i see it on facebook and it's like no 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 that's not the that's not the question where do you go for news do you find it in on the washington post do you go to the plain dealer do you go to uh new york times 
the whole answer was just a con- just like you said, a conglomeration. It's an algorithm, and it's like, oh yeah, no, I go. I, but it, it, that's fascinating. So YouTube. I'm wondering what their sources are. Are you going to YouTube to go to, again, the Washington Post and New York Times? Or are you going because we've gotten into that information bubble of this is the news that interests me? So therefore, now we have all the you have left wing, you have right wing. And you say, like, because back in the day, you you had Walter Cronkite, you had Peter Jennings, you had uh, John Chancellor and all these others. Uh, and you'd watch them. Not, you know, we found out more stuff about their coverage over time, but everybody kind of had a uniform coverage. Now, if you're right wing, you can go an entire day just only watching, listening, and reading right wing material. Same with the left wing, and that we've just completely spread ourselves so thin right now, where you know your news is right wing news or your news is left wing news or your new it, it's it, like we have actually made news delivered to an individual it almost seems like whatever their uh, uh persuasion is yeah um just again just, just you know just the facts right um this comes from an associated press american press institute survey that just came out a couple of months ago and it said that among people from 16 to 40 uh 40% of, of, of the millennials, so to speak, report using Facebook for news every day. YouTube, 37. Instagram, 34%. Mm. And again, that's owned by Meta, Facebook's parents company. TikTok, 29. Snapchat, 24. And Twitter at 23%. Nobody's reading their local paper. Nobody's reading the Akron Beacon Journal or the Plain Dealer or cleveland.com or ohio.com or very few people are and although it does show that people will pay for content in general they're not paying for news sites they're paying for entertainment type sites hmm. yeah that's uh, that's troubling because you know you had your local city council meetings or school board meetings you would have a reporter there that would talk about uh, you know keep the minutes of what's happening and uh, I, I just don't see that as much. Uh, I re- again, working in news radio, we did have people go to the, you know, the the town hall meeting or whatever the case is, and then it just over time it was, yeah, nobody really cares about that anymore. We'll just keep everybody in, and it, it devolved. It's not evolved, in my opinion. I think it's devolved, where the roving reporter kind of went away. That I like when I think of the Woodward and Bernsteins, all the way to Kermit the Frog wearing a trench coat and a little hat with the, the press card and his fedora. fedora. Uh, I just don't see that as much anymore. And it just seems to me as now an outsider, but even in the on the inside as well, it seemed to me that journalism, like the for reporting investigative journalism, there are still some out there, but it almost seems like a lot of media has now become public relations. It's you're waiting for the talking points. You're waiting for whatever the... Um, you know, like like you're not going out on the town. You're waiting for the the administration, whatever it is, like national or the local, to t- send down the talking points of what to say, and then that gets reported. So then it's like, so are you a news organization or are you a mouthpiece for and doing public relations for the government or for whatever it, it, service it is? It just yeah. I, I think are, it's you, a, are you are you a journalist if you're waiting? You're a journalist if you're waiting for the handout and you're reporting on the handout. Yeah. Right. And and the answer is no, you're not, although you might call yourself one. Um, but but that's that's part of the problem is that, the, you know, nature abhors a vacuum as there are fewer and fewer journalists. Other things are going to take its place. 
And one of my timeless truths in my intro to mass communication class has always been that it's hard to compete against free. True. Hard to compete against free. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when Netflix was beginning to take off, I would enjoy asking my students, All right, how many of you have uh, watched stuff on Netflix? And almost everybody would raise their hands. And then I would say, how many of you have a paid a Netflix account you're paying for? And almost <laughs> nobody would raise their hand. Mommy was paying for it, or daddy was paying for it, or a boyfriend was paying for it, or a girlfriend yes. was paying for it, or something like that. And that goes on and on and on. It just accelerates even today. You know, people want to get information, but they don't want to pay for it. And and this actually began in the 1920s with radio. And again, one of these, there's nothing new under the sun things, Tony, is the newspaper industry for a while actually tried to get laws passed to prevent radio from being able to broadcast stories live. Hmm. Because wow, they I knew, didn't know this. Yeah, because they knew over time that that would erode their audience. Now, they weren't successful in doing that, and it took radio a while to really understand how it could present news in a usable format. <laughs> Probably didn't happen until the late 30s, early 40s. But once it did, when television came along, all television did was take the, the radio established format and then modified it with, with, with pictures, with video. And I'm old enough to remember this, right? If you were a little kid and you were growing up in the late 50s or the early 60s and you were watching TV newscasts, what you would see would be Polaroid pictures that the reporters would go out or the videographers, they didn't have videographers back then, they were camera people, would go out and take up car accidents. And they would then blow them up with the big camera back at the studio. So we had a reporter on the scene of the car accident, but you weren't seeing live video. You were actually seeing a picture of what happened 30 minutes or 60 minutes after the accident that the reporter took. And then I literally had to take back to the studio developer, use a Polaroid or whatever. And that was what you would be seeing on the screen. It wasn't until the 60s that we developed live news. It was actually Kennedy's assassination when we actually saw the way that people handled the news reports of that, that there was a preference of TV over newspaper. So that was in the 60s. And even as late as 9-11, right? If you were around, if, if people hearing today's podcast were young during 9-11, they might recall that everybody turned to their TVs. So for about 30 or 40 years, TV was dominant. Not so anymore. Something happens today, like if there's a mass shooting, people instantly go to social media to try to find the latest of what's going on. And a quick aside, right, and a little tip of the hat, right? One of the most reliable things, especially when it comes to celebrity news, is the website TMZ. Yeah. You know, and people kind of sneer at that, but TMZ has gotten almost every celebrity death dead on accurate going all the way back to Michael Jackson's death. That was the big one that put really, I mean, TMZ had been around for a couple of years, but that put them on the map because it took, and, and I remember seeing that in, in real time where I followed TMZ. This is June of 2009, followed them on Twitter. It said, rest in peace, Michael Jackson. And nobody had it. And it was maybe early afternoon, I remember, or maybe like middle afternoon. And it was, wasn't until way in the evening I started seeing reports are saying that Michael Jackson might be I'm like TMZ had that several hours ago. And it just it, it, it was like seeing legacy media need to adapt their standards in real time. I had never seen that before. And uh, or, or when you would watch the NFL draft and you would say, oh, so and so got drafted. And they're like. Uh, the draft didn't even start yet. And it's like, yeah, but we we know about that. And that's how quickly things really had to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you actually brought two different points in what you said, Tony. Uh, the one is the adaptation, which, again, everybody seems to be getting better at nowadays. 
And that's probably one of the things that Twitter is best about is real time explanations of what's going on. You know, a reporter who's at, at the scene of something and puts it on Twitter is basically giving you a firsthand account of what's happening. And that's something that everybody has access to now through their phones, which even 10 years ago, people didn't have. No. But but the other thing that you mentioned is something that sadly is lacking in social media, especially nowadays, is the whole concept of verification. How do we know that something's really going on? So June 20, 2009, TMZ just reports Michael Jackson's dead. They don't bother to verify it because they don't think their verification is important. But they were concerned about getting the facts right. And they got the facts right. So without verification, they still were the, the first to break the news. I've been doing some research. Uh, I'm writing a book about um, Cleveland's Jesse Owens, the Olympic great, four gold medals in 1936 yes. Olympics. And part of this, I'm, I'm looking into some of the years after Owens' triumphs to see how America interpreted what was going on in Nazi Germany. And it's fascinating what I'm learning. In 1942 and even for much of 1943, the New York Times downplayed reports, firsthand reports coming out of Europe about the Holocaust. They couldn't verify it. No. So therefore, they would say allegedly or reportedly, and then put it on page five or page 11 or page 17, it wouldn't hit the front page of their newscast. And for years, there were people in the United States, I'm talking about 42, 43, even in 1944, who would say, oh, I don't believe that this is really happening. This, this, this really couldn't happen. You know, 7 million people exterminated in camps in Europe, and people are, don't know that it's going on. Um, so, you know, verification is extremely important, critically important. But having said that, uh, the people who used to verify generally don't have jobs anymore. Well, yes. And well, by the way, once you find out about what the New York Times said about Stalin back in the day, that'd be pretty fascinating, too. Um, yeah, the verification where it was, do you want to be right or do you want to be first? And we live in a society that is you got to be first and the facts aren't coming completely out. And that's why we've heard in the last six, seven years about what misinformation and disinformation is. And uh, it, it's one thing that fascinates me about Twitter for example, is when things are broken, and I this probably drives you crazy too, is when you have somebody that posts like breaking news, this, this, and this happened. And then it gets, you know, 200,000 retweets and 750,000 <laughs> favorites or likes or whatever. And then the follow-up has to correct that. And it gets 52 tweets, retweets, and then like maybe a hundred likes. So people still remember what the original story was. And then you go, well, no, 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 no. There was an update to that, but because it's put out there and people think about the first time they hear something and they don't really read into it, we've gotten into this information bubble of, uh, I think there's a lot of confirmation bias that ends up happening is that when something gets put out there, people will believe the first story. And if you tell them something different, it's like, no, 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 that's not what, that's not what happened. I'm like, yes, it is. This, here's the follow-up. It's like, I, I always bring up the, uh, uh, the Covington Catholic situation that that happened where the the original story was a bunch of kids from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky were harassing a Native American and smirking in his face and wearing a red MAGA hat. And then you say, then you realize that, oh, wait, the follow up was that they were actually being harassed by the black Hebrew Israelites. And then a Native American pounds a drum in their face and was also harassing and threatening 
but people only remember the original story and they don't want to hear anything else. And that's what's really bothering me about how news gets broken nowadays. And I don't know if that's sheer incompetence from from media or if it's done by design. And I kind of think it's in some ways it's a little bit of both. A lie can get around the world a hundred times in the morning before the truth gets a chance to put its pants on, Tony. <laughs> um, you know, I, you mentioned confirmation bias, and that's certainly part of it is, especially with the major cable news media outlets, they're no longer really news outlets. They're trying to sell advertising to a, a specific audience. And because of that, they begin to change or modify their shows and what they say on their shows to appeal to that audience. So a liberal is going to tune into MSNBC because they know that they're going to have a built-in liberal bias for everything that they watch. A conservative might turn into Breitbart or Fox for the same reason. Mm -hmm. But what's funny is everybody, especially among the young, realize that what they're seeing isn't the truth. And they also realize that they are concerned about that. Uh, this research that I told you about says nine out of 10 Americans between the ages of 16 and 40 feel that misinformation is a problem. Seven in 10 have personally been victims of it. And they're not sure who to blame for misinformation. Nope. <laughs> All they know is there's a problem out there. I can't tell you why, but I know there's a problem and I'm worried about it myself, unless it's something that kind of fits into my views. Then I'll gladly pass it along to anybody who follows me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever social media, uh, social media accounts I have. Well, because we what we do is we jump to conclusions as society. It's we hear about a story. This came out just like that Covington Catholic thing is we jump to the conclusion that those kids had to be racist. And then you start looking and you say, OK, what's the median income of the? Oh, well, of course, it's white privilege. It's this and this and this and this. And you say, but wait a second, maybe like people don't stop and go, maybe that's my confirmation bias. Maybe I don't like it because I've been railing against white privilege and I'm a, a progressive and I'm somebody who looks at marginalized communities and everything. Maybe I give it a day or two, let things simmer. Instead, it was like immediately we have to jump on our high horses, no matter what political persuasion, what social persuasion we have. And it bothers me because that starts getting taken root. And the other thing is when we talk about media nowadays, it's not necessarily Washington Post, New York Times. It's basically almost anyone who has a blue check mark next to their name. So that could be anywhere from Alyssa Milano to James Woods. And that's how we consume. We, quote unquote, the, the great unwashed, collect uh, and aggregate news nowadays is that I like Alyssa Milano because I was a fan of Who's the Boss and I'm also a liberal. So I follow her and she reposts something or I like James Woods because I saw him in so many movies. I thought he was a good actor and he's right wing and he confirms my biases, too. Uh, so therefore, he reposts something and I'm going to take that at face value, too. And so media is not necessarily the media. It's kind of like a it's just mass media now. It's just yeah. whole because I, I think there's a difference between mass media now and corporate media. That, and it's that's thrown Tony, up that's in a, the air. That, that's a great point. And again, you're making multiple great points here. But a lot of media nowadays, they're, the kind of mantra is ready, fire, aim. You know, they're going to pull the trigger on a story before they really think about what the intent of that is. You know, the whole Covington example, uh, if you write a story solely based on one set of facts 
one video, one video taken with a cell phone, for example, we should be smart enough to realize that uh, there's a bigger vision of that story than just one person with a with a, a cell phone camera going on. We should understand that there's more going on than meets the eye. Uh, the whole George Floyd situation, you know, yep. you start seeing three, four, five, six videos, different people showing the police officer with his with his um, knee on the guy's neck. And you really begin to get the import of what's going on. But you've got all the, you know, so many videos affirming that it's not just one. So that that kind of really, you know, plays into a situation. But something else that you said that I think is pretty important, right, is the confirmation bias kind of on steroids, maybe on on the mega steroids at this point in our society is people want to gravitate to what they believe. And they'll grab any little bit of news or information that kind of affirms what they think is true, not wondering for a minute whether there really is veracity behind it. And that young man in Covington, Kentucky, is going to be pretty rich for the rest of his life as a result of the many lawsuits that he has uh, successfully won. And by that, what I'm referring to is that the lawsuits get settled out of court, but we all know that there's seven figures and at least in one case, an eight figure settlement that's involved. You know, it's CNN and uh, right. Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Sandman's walking around with multiple money bags right now. Now, that doesn't <laughs> wash away the, the 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 big brush that's been kind of painted to him for the rest of his life. You know, I, I mean, uh, he's not going to shake hands with anybody or go on and date with anybody without that ever coming up. You know, he's been he's been tainted in a way that is just impossible to remove that taint. But having said that, for a longest amount of time now, the media in our country hasn't cared. You no. know, look at look at Donald Trump. They don't care. Donald Trump was nothing more. And again, I'm not talking about what he did as president, because that's not the scope of today's yes. podcast. I'm talking about Donald Trump, the media person. Right. Donald Trump was a cash register. When he oh, was yeah. running for president in 2015, 2016, those early people, oh, he has no chance, but we're going to mention him anyway. They showed empty time, podiums. Right. Like, every, they showed yeah. his lectern up there for an hour and a half before a rally. And I'm like, that's just free billions in free advertising. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and because every time they mention his name, cha-ching, the cash registers would go off. And that's really, and that's really, you know, the people who are ripping him down now forget about the millions that they made building him up in 2015 and 2016. Well, and then the other thing that was was interesting as far as journalism goes is what I noticed the last couple of years during COVID was the need for airtime experts. And one thing I've railed on over, over the years on my podcast has been talking about the, at one time we used to have panel shows that were you know, you would have Johnny Carson would have Don Rickles would show up and they would they would have the little panel. And uh, and then the news shows would have either an editorial or a point counterpoint. And then we got to a point of 24 hour news by the 1980s with CNN that we need to fill airtime, that we used to have national news that was a half hour a day. And then it got to the point where like, oh, no, we need to fill the other 23 hours and 30 minutes to fill the rest. So that's where you started having the shows of you know, Hannity and Combs and Bill O'Reilly and uh, Ed Schultz and uh, so many others. And essentially they were like talk radio guys that ended up doing a TV show too. And then it got to the point where we couldn't have like a Hannity and Combs anymore. We had to have one person do a show and have an expert on. Then that has continued adapting to where 
we need to have a panel of experts on to talk about a specific subject. So therefore, it couldn't be two people arguing about 9-11, about the Patriot Act, about uh, uh, the 2000 election or whatever the case was 20 years ago. It got to the point now where you can't have somebody who is on the opposite side of whatever the approved narrative is that we need to have Dr. Fauci and only Dr. Fauci on. We only have to have uh, the head of the CDC on. We only have to because they are the so what I call a so-called expert, but they are the experts. You can't have somebody like, hey, we have Dr. Fauci on, but he's also going to debate Jay Bhattacharya, who's against the lockdowns. And that would make for a great spirited discussion. Instead, it was, no, 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 we need one approved opinion here, which is Dr. Fauci's. And this is what bothered me when it came to journalism and that people weren't asking the proper questions the last couple of years about vaccine efficacy. And they're still afraid because they're afraid of getting banned off of social media. They're afraid of getting fired from their job. They're afraid of a lot of this stuff. And especially in a precarious industry like media, where if you say one wrong thing, gone, you're gone. You're at the highway, Jack. And Cancel culture on steroids. It's it's amazing how this has kind of accelerated in the last couple of years where we just need one person and one person only to push forward a, a particular narrative. And what bothered me in media is no one asked any questions. It was, no, this is, I guess, what we have to do now. Tony, the, the whole scenario of coverage around COVID-19 shows uh, to the depths, the depths to which journalism has descended, so to speak. And the thing that I think is so ironic about it is at the time I was kind of keeping tabs on disinformation and some of that was going on. And the World Health Organization, of all the organizations, and trust me, I don't put a ton of credence into them, but they warned people about what they called an infodemic. They just said out out front in February, there's going to be misinformation out there about COVID-19. There's going to be a lot of misinformation, so be on guard against it. Sadly, and, a lot of it was from them themselves. Well, and, and that's that was my point precisely, is what happens all of a sudden is journalists no longer are listening to contrary points of view. They're not weighing or evaluating what, what's really happening. They're taking as gospel an expert and basically running national and global health policy because a handful of experts say this is the right thing to do, never questioning it. And uh, I'm not afraid of cancel culture, so I'll just tell you this point blank. Uh, you may disagree with the guy, but if you really want to get some insight in terms of what happened in 2020 with respect to um, COVID-19 and the treatment, go read Robert Kennedy's book. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a phenomenal read, and you're going to walk away from there shaking your heads and, and saying, how in the world did we get to this point? I had I had his publisher on my podcast as a guest. And I was, did not know that. Yeah, it was great. You should, it, I had about a, almost a year ago now when uh, all that was going on. But yeah, no, that, that that's what happened. And when you're talking about earlier about how journalism became public relations, I remember in the state of Ohio, uh, the amount of people that, of course, everyone had to work from home, had the, the laptop classes, I call it. And you were waiting for your guidance from the governor, because instead of people actually going on site because they weren't allowed to, you had to wear seven masks and uh, you couldn't do anything because of COVID. Uh, so we had to sit around as people in the media waiting for our guidance from the governor. And I'm thinking to myself, 
again, Woodward and Bernstein, what happened to these days that now we have to sit there with our little glass of wine for wine with DeWine at two o'clock and wait for what we need to do next. You we just had stole to... my line, Tony. That was what I was going to point out, right? <laughs> Journalists are sitting around wine with DeWine, you know, and for like three months, just about solid, right? That was like the lead story is what, what the governor of Ohio says we're doing next with COVID-19. And that's not journalism. That's not that, that that's we what we in the media and I did. I, I feel ashamed. I like I have to take a Brillo pad in the shower every time I think about this is that <laughs> I, I, we were doing public relations for the government. And I'm like, I am a media member who my job, what I wanted to get into the business when I first talked to you 16 years ago was to ask questions, was to push the envelope to figure out. Let's get to the bottom of a story. Let's find the facts. Let's sift out the fiction and figure this out. What well, we we kind of knew a lot of stuff with COVID early, yet again we had to sit around and wait for our guidance. And I'm like, that's not journalism. We are not doing this. Is journalistic malpractice that we are doing right now by waiting by getting approved talking points via email from a a .gov email address. And I'm just I'm scratching my head going, is anybody going to say anything about this? Is anybody going to do actual journalism? And everyone was afraid to. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Tony, I'm in finals week. I can't go much further with. Oh, yeah. I was going to wrap it up after this anyways. But I I will come back. Uh, This is a very important topic. Uh, People need to be looking at multiple sources, multiple sides of any issue of controversy. If you're the person that was just sitting around and and uh, aimlessly following everything that we heard with Tony Fauci or Wine with DeWine back in 2020, you are part of the problem. Yeah. And you better understand that because you should be looking at multiple sides on any issue of importance. And it, it speaks volumes to me. I saw some statistic like, I don't know, 90% of uh, all the uh, statewide elected officials in many states who are running for re-election got reelected in this last election cycle. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not right. That nope. didn't happen before. Mm-mm. People are just paying less and less attention to what's really going on in the world around them. And that's going to cause big problems on down the road for our democracy. The the la- last question, and you can make it really brief, but uh, with you being a professor, professor in journalism, mass communications, uh, and you're talking to 18, 19, 20 year olds, What's the bit of advice for people listening right out there that want to get into the business of working in media, journalism, anything like that under the sun? What do you tell them right now as opposed to somebody, something that you may have told me 16 years ago? Oh, my word. That the, there is no short answer to that. But let me, let me just throw a couple of things <laughs> out there. Um, one is look long and hard at what you want to do. I tell them, hey, go look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Look at what the long-term trends are for jobs in this area. Make sure you're going to be happy in a situation where you may work at long hours and relatively low pay, because that's probably the type of job you're going to get. And I know lots of people in their late 20s, early 30s who have been in the news slash journalism business who are becoming increasingly disenchanted with what they're doing. And... I don't want that to happen to people who are 19, 20 years old today. The other thing, though, that I do tell them is if you really do have a lot of passion and enthusiasm and you believe you can make a difference in what you want to do, if you look at it soberly, you can get a good degree and you can get a good job if you just follow a certain formula and just be willing to stick to it. 
but realize that the job is so different than it was, you know, even 20 years ago. I was in Alabama last week with um, some things at the Jesse Owens Museum. Wonderful person from Channel 19 in Huntsville. Um, Deirdre Briscoe is her name, reporter there. I interviewed a, a, several of us, did a phenomenal job. She stayed at the museum for five or six hours. And um, I discovered that she was actually editing and putting, assembling her thing in her car in the parking lot outside the wow. museum. She was a, a backpack multimedia journalist, we call MMJ, it. MMJ, yeah. Right. She didn't have a camera person. She didn't have anything else. And what I began to understand is she's not that old. She might be 30. But that's just, she's accepted that as being, this is what my job is like these days. You know, so it's no longer you can just do one thing. you got to be able to do several things. And that's the other thing that I tell people. No, you can't just write. No, you can't just do video. No, you can't just do audio. you got to be able to do many things and do many things fairly well to get a job nowadays. John, thank you so much. This is fantastic. I uh, can't wait to put this out. It's going out uh, the, I believe the 20, was it 21st? I believe this will go out uh, right before Christmas. And uh, yeah, and then I'm going to have to have you back on talking about the Jesse Owens book. I'm looking forward to that. Be thrilled, Tony. And uh, again, keep up your great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Th thank you so much, John.